Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 27. The fourth part is several concerning the history of Canaan, with this episode being the second specifically on the Canaanite city of Eblah, as well as the history of the Syrian city of Aleppo. Eblah, like I covered last week, was the site where the Eblah tablets were discovered. And last week's episode took us up through the end of its second kingdom. It was a major city in the biblical region of Canaan, and the focus of much of the trading in that place and era. Eblah is also the predecessor to Aleppo. What's going on today in Aleppo? I'll get to that at the end of this episode. First, a history of Eblah, beginning with the Third Kingdom. So let's get started. The Third Kingdom of Eblah is named, wait for it, Marduk III. It lasted from about 2000 to 1600 BC. In the first part of this kingdom, Eblah was quickly rebuilt from its second destruction, essentially as a planned city. The foundations of new buildings covered what little remained of the second kingdom. There were new palaces and temples, as well as new fortifications. All of these were built in two circles, one for the lower part of the city and one for the Acropolis. The population of Ebla during the Third Kingdom is estimated to have numbered around 40,000 in the capital and over 200,000 people in the entire kingdom. The Marduk III population is thought to have been predominantly Semitic Amorite, but they were in the area prior to this period as the Amorites were mentioned in the First Kingdom's tablets as neighbors and also as rural subjects. The Amorites slowly came to dominate Ebla after the destruction of the Second Kingdom and began to form the majority of its population. The Amorite Ebalites worshipped many of the same deities as the Ebalites of earlier periods, while also maintaining the sanctity of the Acropolis in the center of the city. The Third Kingdom's iconography and royal ideology were under the influence of Yamhad's culture. This is evident since apparently kingship was conveyed to the anointed from the Yamhadite deities instead of Ishtar of Ebla, which is evident by the Ebalite seals during Indemla's reign. Remember that Yamhad was a neighboring city and is now known as Aleppo. The first known king of the Third Kingdom was Ibitlim. A basalt votive statue bearing Ibitlim's inscription was discovered in 1968. This statue was vital in helping to identify the site of Tel Marduk with the ancient kingdom of Ebla. But written on the statue, the name of the king appears to be of Amorite origin. It is therefore possible that the inhabitants of the Third Kingdom were largely Amorites, as it is also believed that most of the inhabitants of Syria at the time were Amorites. I'm purposely not covering the Amorites now, even though they seem to have been interwoven into the Third Ebalite Kingdom. Since they are treated and considered differently in the Bible, I'm saving them for a later date. By about the beginning of the 18th century BC, Ebla had become a vassal of Yahim, an Amorite kingdom centered in Aleppo. Written records are not available for this period, but other archaeological finds show that the city was still a vassal during Yahim Lim III of Yahim's reign. He ruled from about 1650 to 1625 BC. One of the known rulers of Ebla during this time was Imame who received gifts from the Egyptian 13th dynasty pharaoh Hotep Ibri. 
indicating the continued wide commercial connections and importance of Ebla. These gifts included some objects in carved hippopotamus ivory and an ancient Egyptian ceremonial mace made of gold, silver, and ivory. By the way, hippopotami, at the time, were relatively common in the Nile Delta. Ebla is also mentioned in tablets from the city of Alaka in modern-day Turkey. Specifically, these tablets mention an Ebalite princess who married a son of King Amakakum of Alaka, who belonged to a branch of the royal Hamadite dynasty. But, in spite of all this, Ebla suffered its third destruction at the hands of the Hittite king Mursili I in about 1600 BC. It is thought that Indilama was the last king of Ebla. Some historians believe that the Song of Release epic mentioned last week describes the destruction of the Third Kingdom and preserves older elements of its civilization. Ebla never recovered from this third destruction, but it did not disappear from the historic record entirely. It was a small village in the phase named, wait for this one too, Marduk IV, which was from about 1600 to 1200 BC. And it was also mentioned in the records of Alaka as a vassal to the Idrimi dynasty around 1450 BC. Then there was a period known as Marduk V that lasted from about 1200 to 535 BC, when Ebla was a rural early Iron Age settlement that grew in size during later periods. The government throughout the various kingdoms was not terribly unique for the era, but definitely worthy of a mention. The first kingdom government consisted of the king and the grand vizier, who headed a council of elders and also the administration. The second kingdom was a monarchy, but little is known about it because of the lack of written records. The third kingdom was a city-state monarchy with reduced importance under the authority of Yamhet. The queen shared the running of affairs of state with the king. The crown prince was involved in internal matters, and the second prince was involved in foreign affairs. Most duties, including those concerning the military, were handled by the vizier and the administration, which consisted of 13 court dignitaries, with each controlling between 400 and 800 men to form a bureaucracy of about 12,000 people, quite a sizable government. I guess I should have mentioned this next piece a few episodes ago with the Sumerians. In Mesopotamia, the word Lugal was the title given to a king, but in Abla, the term designated a governor who was directly under the authority of the Grand Vizier, and therefore under the control of the king. During the First Kingdom period, the king controlled the economy. However, even during this time, wealthy families appeared to manage their financial affairs without a tremendous amount of government intervention. Even so, the economic system was apparently somewhat redistributive, with the king dispensing food and other stores to its permanent and seasonal workers. It is estimated that approximately 40,000 people contributed to this system. But in general, and unlike Mesopotamia, the land remained the property of the villages, who were responsible for paying a percent of the crop production to the palace. During this time, the raising of livestock was mostly pastoral, and large herds were managed by the palace. Also, the city's inhabitants owned around 140,000 sheep and goats, and about 9,000 head of cattle. Ebla was a polytheistic state. During the First and Second Kingdoms, their deities were organized into three genres, but I'll skip over the details as they're not really that relevant. 
In addition to their own deities, the Ebalites worshipped few Mesopotamian deities, preferring northern Semitic gods, some of which were unique to Ebla. The Ebalites also worshipped dead kings as gods, like so many others of that era. And then there are the Ebla tablets. The tablets constitute one of the oldest archives and libraries ever found. There is tangible evidence of their arrangement and even possible sorting into a classification system. The larger tablets were probably originally stored on shelves, but had fallen onto the floor when the palace was destroyed. The locations of the fallen tablets allowed archaeologists to reconstruct their original position on the shelves. They found the tablets had originally been shelved according to subject. On the other hand, when Sumerian archives were excavated, such sorting features were not found. A sizable portion of the Ebla tablets contained literary and other text, seeming to suggest the collection also served as a true library rather than a collection of archives intended solely for use by the kings, their ministers, and their bureaucracy. The tablets show evidence of the early transcription of text into foreign languages and scripts, also classification and cataloging for easier retrieval, and arrangement by size, form, and content. Currently, and as a result of the Syrian civil war, excavations of Ebla stopped in March 2011, and large-scale looting occurred after the site came under the control of rebel groups. Many subterranean passages were dug, and a crypt full of human remains was discovered. Then the remains were scattered and discarded by the robbers, who probably hoped to find jewelry and other marketable artifacts. And the reason I took this detour to Ebla was for this segue into the history of Aleppo. There has been little archaeological work in Aleppo, but given its proximity to Ebla, it's probably a fairly safe assumption that the history of the two cities are very parallel. We do know that the modern city essentially occupies the site of the ancient one, and it is believed that the area has been occupied since about 5000 BC, as excavations in Talat al-Sada seem to show. Aleppo appears as an important city very early in the historic record. First known record of Aleppo comes from the 3rd millennium BC in the Ebla tablets when Aleppo was referred to as Halam. Also, a few historians identify Aleppo with the capital of an ancient independent kingdom closely related to Ebla, known as Army, although this identification is contested. Remember from last week that Army was allied with Ebla, as they both fought the Mari during Ebla's second kingdom. Aleppo also has religious importance, with the primary temple of the storm god Hadad being located on the citadel hill in the center of the city. As such, the city was referred to in some records as the city of Hadad. During the old Babylonian period, Aleppo's name appears as Halab, or in other sources, Haba, for the first time. Aleppo was the capital of the important Amorite dynasty of Yamhad. The kingdom of Yamhad lasted from about 1800 to 1525 BC, and was probably at its zenith during the reign of Yarhimlim I. Yamhad was then devastated by the Hittites under Marcellus I in a battle during the 16th century BC. However, it soon resumed its leading role in the Syrian region when the Hittite power diminished due to internal strife. Knowing that nature abhors a vacuum, especially when it comes to military and political control. Parshatatar, king of the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni, 
started a rebellion that led to the death of the last king of Yamhad, Ilhel Imla I, in around 1525 BC. After that, Parsha Tatar conquered Aleppo and the city found itself in the crossfire of the Mitanni, the Hittites, and the Egyptians. Foreshadowing, perhaps, 3,500 years in advance. Later, the Hittite king, Supil Ulamas I, permanently defeated the Mitanni and conquered Aleppo in the 14th century BC. Supilulamas installed his son Telepinas as king, and a succession of Supilulamas descendants ruled Aleppo until its late Bronze Age collapse. This collapse, essentially of the Hittite kingdom, occurred in the 12th century BC, when Aleppo became part of the Syrio-Hittite kingdom of Palestine. At the beginning of the first millennium BC, Aleppo became part of Bit Agassai. Bit Agassai, along with Aleppo, was conquered by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC and then became part of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. This lasted up until the late 7th century BC, before the rule of the Neo-Babylonians and then the Achaemenid Persians. Alexander the Great conquered the region in 333 BC. Then Seleucus Nictar established a Greek settlement on the site between 301 and 286 BC. He called it Berio after Berio and Macedon. Seleucus Nictar is probably one of the most pivotal characters of the region that you've probably never heard of, and he'll get an episode or two at some point in the future. Now this is the point in time where I usually pause the history of the era to pick it up sometime later at the end of the Old Testament. But I only have a little bit left, and given how the context of the history of Aleppo is intertwined with our present world, I'll go a bit further. Northern Syria was the center of gravity of the Hellenistic colonizing activity, and therefore the Greek culture of the Seleucid Empire. As did other Greek cities of the Seleucid Kingdom, Borio probably enjoyed a measure of local autonomy, with a local civic assembly composed of free Greeks. Borea remained under Seleucid rule until 88 BC, when Syria was occupied by Tigranes the Great, and Borea became part of the Kingdom of Armenia. Yes, that too will be covered later. After a Roman victory over Tigranes, Syria was handed over to Pompey in 64 BC, at which time they became a Roman province. And we slowly inch closer to the year zero. Rome's presence afforded relative stability in northern Syria for over three centuries. And now for a teaser for what's to come. These were three very pivotal centuries for Christianity. Although the province was administered by an envoy from Rome, Rome did not oppose its administrative organization on the Greek-speaking ruling class. Several episodes ago, I mentioned how Rome was able to maintain control through a loose administration with semi-independent local control. This is another manifestation of it. Temple guards, anyone? The Roman era saw an increase in the population of northern Syria that accelerated under the Byzantines well into the 5th century, and that's AD. In late antiquity, Borea was the second largest Syrian city after Antioch, the capital of Syria, and thought to be the third largest city in the Roman world. And that's no small feat. Archaeological evidence indicates a high population density for settlements between Antioch and Borea into the 6th century AD. The area landscape holds now the remains of large estate houses and churches, 
such as the Church of St. Simeon Stylites. A posted picture is on the way. You know where to look. Oreo is mentioned in 2 Maccabees chapter 13, verses 4-6, through 6, where it read, But the king of kings aroused the anger of Antiochus against the scoundrel. When Lysias informed him that this man was to blame for all the trouble, he ordered them to take him to Boreo and to put him to death by the method that is customary in that place. For there is a tower there, fifty cubits high, full of ashes, and it has a rim running around it that on all sides inclines precipitously into the ashes. There they all pushed to destruction anyone guilty of sacrilege or notorious for other crimes. By the way, I can find no archaeological or historical mention of such a tower. But then again, there have been little ruins found in Aleppo from that period. Now, I'm purposely skipping over a great deal of history, probably enough for a couple episodes, to bring us to an overview of what's happening in Aleppo now. And not because it directly impacts the history of Christianity, but more because it directly impacts the people we currently share this blue sphere with. These people whose ancestors lived in Canaan with Abraham. The people who believe they are the descendants of Abraham. So let's get real, and probably a little depressing, and cover the Syrian civil war. At least what's occurred in Aleppo. On August 12, 2011, a few months after protests had begun elsewhere in Syria, any government protests were held in several parts of Aleppo. It is thought that at least two protesters were killed by police forces during a demonstration in Sakhar, a protest that had tens of thousands of attendees. Two months later, a pro-government demonstration was held in Aleppo. According to the New York Times, a rally was held on October 11, 2011, in support of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Local media claimed over 1.5 million people attended. In late July 2012, the Syrian civil war reached Aleppo when fighters from the surrounding countryside mounted their first offensive there apparently trying to exploit the momentum gained during their assault on Damascus. Since that time, some of the Civil War's most devastating bombing and fiercest fighting has taken place in Aleppo, often in residential areas. In late 2012, block-to-block and then house-to-house fighting between rebels and government forces continued. And in early 2013, the Syrian army entrenched itself in the western part of Aleppo, and the rebels in the eastern part with a no-man's land between them. For those of you familiar with the history of World War II, think of St. Petersburg. Much of the civilian population of the city attempted to live in the middle of this conflict. One estimate of casualties by an international humanitarian organization was that by 2012, over 13,000 people had been killed and over 23,000 injured. As a result of the severe battle, many sections in the old city of Aleppo, a World Heritage Site, including parts of the Great Mosque of Aleppo and other medieval buildings in the ancient city, were destroyed and ruined, or burnt in late summer 2012, as the armed groups of the Free Syrian Army and the Syrian Arab Army fought for control of the city. As of November 2013, Journalist Francisco Borai of The Guardian reported that Islamic fighters dominated rebel areas in Aleppo, 
and claimed that they were focusing on enforcing Sharia law and fighting one another rather than the government. In February 2014, the opposition group of the Islamic Front claimed responsibility for destroying a series of major historic buildings in the Old City, including the Justice Palace, the Carlton Citadel Hotel, which was being used as an army base, the old building of the city council, and the Grand Sural of Aleppo. Civilians in Aleppo are living under a blockade imposed by the Syrian army and suffer from a shortage of medical staff and supplies, water, electricity, and food. In August 2016, a report from a Euromed monitor team confirmed that one of the hospitals, overcrowded by injured civilians, was bombed by Russian planes. And that is the not-so-uplifting tale of what has come to modern Canaan. Sorry to end on such a down note. Next week, I'll resume the broader history of Canaan. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Also go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.